Hello, everybody. Welcome to our virtual 610 Palmal. Um, so on the verge of yet another lockdown in London and the club shutting, um, we've been talking to our resident Bordeaux expert, Jane Anson, and resident Burgundy expert, Jasper Morris, MW, ever since March. Who'd have thought we'd still be doing this all the way up to Christmas? And I guess the question for these two people are, do you drink anything apart from Bordeaux and Burgundy? So that was the question we posed to them, and they have picked three of their favorite wines that they have in their cellars that they're gonna to talk to us about now. Um, so we'll see if they can actually live without Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Noir. So please do chat away at the side. Um, tell us what you're drinking, where you're drinking it from, and put your photos on social media with hashtag 67 from home. Um, and a big welcome to both Jane and Jasper. Hello, Jane, how are you? Hi, oh, hang on, let me just unmute. Hey, I'm great, thank you, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, well, I think we've got a super busy night, a club, a busy night in the club tonight. So, uh, yeah, people are making the most of it before, yeah, we go down into another lockdown, unfortunately. So, yeah, yeah um, but yeah, but and Jane, you look, you're in different surroundings tonight. You've been kicked yeah. out of the kitchen. <laughs> I'm in this, yeah, the same downstairs space. I've just changed angle. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Is that a still a cat, a cat friendly zone or is the cat yeah, part? I think this could be her favourite spot of all. Let's see. Okay. <laughs> Hello, Jasper. How are you? You well? I'm very well indeed. Uh, I thank you. A little bit, a uh, little bit wiped out because yesterday we had the delayed running of the Osbeesterbone auction. Yes. So that was all of Sunday. But uh, in the end, despite all the uh, stresses and the hoops we had to jump through to get there. Uh, we actually broke a few records and uh, kept up with last year's prices. And I can see that, yeah. The, the special charity barrel. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, no, it went well. Great. Tonight will be a, my treat after it to have some other sorts of wines. Yeah, well, this is very interesting to see what you drink outside of those two regions. But then next week, I think we're doing uh, your uh, a Bordeaux versus Burgundy oh, yes. face off. Yeah, this, should be this fun. Thursday, in fact, in three day time. <laughs> Yeah, now I've been starting my exercises, uh, <laughs> exercises ready to make, make sure I'm on perfect form for that. It's right. going to be right. an aggressive battle between us, Gasly and Skirmish. It's going to be very friendly, I'm sure. Very, very friendly. But, you know, <clears> unless you just do Romani Conti, of course, that's it. It's going to be three vintage of Romani Conti, three vintage of just doing Romani Conti. No, we're, we're doing some pretty good wines. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's lovely to both see you together rather than see you separately. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing this. And I will let you carry on. OK, wonderful. Well, I agree. I have, don't think I've ever looked forward to a tasting as much to actually be doing this with Jasper. They're absolutely brilliant. And also, I am sure he agrees, this has been a year when we have been trapped, usually happily, but trapped in our home regions much more than we normally would be. And I have really, really enjoyed the chance to dream about some of my favorite vineyards in the world that I love going to. So I really did pick three wines, which I, I always have in my cellar at home and which I try to visit as often as I can because I like the people, I like the settings and I like the, the taste. And so this was a really enjoyable opportunity to share that with you and to share it with Jasper as well, which really I'm, I'm so happy about, so great. Um, and Jasper, I just saw here, we have Alistair who bought two barrels at the auction yesterday. All oh, right. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been reading my chats yet. Uh, thank you, Alistair. Very good news. Good. You can tell us about them on the chats, what you bought. Yes, exactly. Oh, anyway, so this is, it's Redhead Power Night tonight. Uh, <laughs> those of you who only know me recently, um, my hair was quite red once, but uh, still sort of 
a little bit. Um, I've got the first wine, have I not? Is that the order? Yeah, that's the order. Um, Am I going to, yeah, are, we, are you going to kick off? I, I think we should just say to everybody that when we were selecting our wines, we said to each other that we wouldn't pick any Chardonnays or any Pinots, even from outside of our regions, because we thought, you know, we would just um, go completely out of each other's areas as well and leave the Pinots and Cabernets for, for Thursday night when we're doing our Bordeaux-Burgundy battle. So I would just like to say before I talk about mine that had I been picking Pinots and um Chardonnays, I probably would have gone to Oregon for my Pinots. I probably would have had a Domaine Drouin, um, probably Cuvée Lorraine because I love it, or the Airy Vineyards or, or Nicholas J, who I think actually is on later this evening with 67 Palmel. Um, and if I was going Chardonnay, I've, I've never asked you what you think of this wine, but the wine that I have a lot is Domaine Rappé, Pernod Burgles, Premier Cru, Soufretil. I love that wine mm. and I put it a lot in my cellar, but I don't yeah. continue those. So, I think Vincent Rappe is uh, making gorgeous wine in both colours, so he, he's doing well. Uh, I equally didn't do any Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot. If I had, then um, it would have been Ridge Montivello, but uh, that would have been a bit of a no-brainer. But uh, I did, not quite cheap, but then I checked with you first, uh, Jane, but I did think a Cabernet Franc should be allowed. Uh, so well, having one of those is one of my two reds. Um, Perfect. So yeah, go ahead. Stick us off. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So um, two of the wines uh, which uh, we're having uh, tonight from my side are wines which I had a commercial relationship with when I was back in my Morrison Verdin importing days. Originally we were only going to deal in French wines but we did stretch out later on into various countries, a bit New Zealand and uh, California, but also two European countries caught my um, imagination uh, and interest. Um, one was Germany uh, for the Riesling grape and the other was Spain. So we're going to have a Spanish red to finish this evening. So um, I'm sort of wasn't that adventurous and thought the uh, Mosel or Moselle uh, was the place to go to. And I went to see some of the classic producers in the um, villages, the, the um, uh, Zeltingens and the Garachas and uh, those sorts of things. And uh, however, one of them, Johannes Zellbeck, said, I want to take you to see somebody different. And it was very, very different. It was uh, Reinhard Heimann, and some of you will have listened in to his daughter, Sarah, uh, doing an absolutely great presentation. When was it? Six weeks ago, probably. And something really stirred me during that presentation. There was a magical moment when she was asked, uh, I know it's really difficult for you now in these hot, dry years, but what about... Um, maybe irrigation. I know it's not allowed, but um, wouldn't you prefer it to be allowed? And she said, no, if we can't grow these grapes without irrigation, then we shouldn't be growing grapes here. I would just stop. And that was an incredibly powerful message, uh, I thought, in the, the, the sort of uh, environmental, ecological side of things. Uh, we should be growing um, grapes and making wine in places where it's sustainable. And having enough water is surely a major feature in that. Right, sorry, apologies for, for uh, uh, wasn't really a rant because it was on the positive side. Um, so I met Reinhardt and he was doing things very, very differently. Now there are many more doing it, but he was one of the first to go in this direction of um, the dry wines. So at the top end is Krosikovac, but he starts right at the beginning with a wine called uh, Schieferterrassen, which or Slate Terraces, which for a long time was just my automatic, particularly in the summertime, glugging white. I could, I could have drunk, it's a wine I could drink every single day without a problem. 
but we've gone a bit further up market here to one of the single vineyard ones. And in fact, one of the subsections of a single vineyard, he has a vineyard called uh, Ulen, or if you, I mean, it's, it's uh, a large, I'm just gonna see if I can share my screen, which doesn't always work. Um, you should, I hope, be able to uh, see that's the Ulen slopes across the river. He's right up at the top of the Mosul, just before the confluence um, with the, uh, the Rhine. And you can see how unbelievably steep the slopes are. And I, I'm not seeing anything, Jasper. But it's you're not seeing anything? No, but no, nobody else seeing anything? Oh, hang on, there it is, yes. Yep. yes it's flashing in and out. <laughs> it's going on and off on my, on my screen. Uh, I'll abandon the share, I think, because that's, but if you have at least seen it and how wonderfully uh, steep it is, and uh, I'll just try um, one other thing. There is the red slate, which is the soil in this particular vineyard. So I hope you have seen that. And now I will abandon the share and go back to being, going back to being me. Um, there's actually a parallel here with um, um, the Ridge Montebello because um, in a particular magazine, lots of people were asked what would be, French people were all asked, mostly winemakers, uh, were asked what would be their favorite wines if not French. And I think every single one bar one said Ridge Montebello for red. Whites was a bit more varied, but some, including the critic um, Michel Bertin, said without question, Heyman Lovenstein, I should say Heyman Lovenstein, um, uh, Ulen vineyard. And there are three, there's a Blaufusele from Blue Soil, there's a whiter soil in uh, Laubach, and then there is this one, which is Rotlai. Um, I, I apologies, my German, but I've never spoken, never learned German, so my pronunciation will probably be dreadful. And that's what I've chosen in 2017. Um, I'm a slow drinker in my own cellar, so we've actually got stuff from quite a bit earlier of what I've got uh, at home. The key to this style of winemaking, it's not the same as people who are doing spate laser trockens, which is when they're growing grapes the same way they would for cabinet spate laser or ice laser, and they're then vinifying some of them dry and calling it trocken. Here, you are starting out right at the beginning to make this sort of dry wine, which means that his yields lower. Uh, he picks um, a little bit earlier. I think he typically picks in September rather than going through to sort of late October and November. Uh, and he vinifies all the way through, um, uh, including in barrel. He's actually got an amazing underground cellar in which between the ground level and the cellar level, uh, there are some organ pipes, which he's put in the cellar, to suck the air in and out. And somebody told me they made it, again, I'm, I'm even less musical than I am, uh, whatever it, I've just said that I wasn't before. Um, but they said it makes a perfect G or something like that. Uh, anyway, um, but um, that's my background introduction. And then uh, shall, we, shall we talk about each other's wines, how they taste? So I'll maybe ask Jane to say a thing or two about the wine. Well, my first thought is how aromatic it is and how I can really tell that this is a rich wine, even on the nose. I'm, I'm assuming that the alcohol is quite low since it's a, a Riesling, I'm guessing. 12 um, point... Not, not in this style, not especially low, it's 12, 12 and five. Yeah, yeah. It's not one of the um, sort of eight, nine type things. No, you're right, it's 12.5, but and yet the colour and the kind of texture looks very rich and round. Hmm. Gorgeous. If anybody gets a, a muddle about which is Jane and which is me, I'm the one who's not spitting. 
<laughs> and also, if anyone is wanting to follow exactly the wines that we're tasting, the first, as you'll see on the chat box, there's a, a list of wines at first, but that's not the right order. And after that, I have put them in the right order underneath that. So you'll see exactly the wines and the vintages that we are tasting. So yeah, so, so my immediate um, impression is that the texture is rich and round, but actually the acidity is beautifully crisp and clean and clear when you're on the palate. Yes, it's a tiny bit reductive on the nose, uh, but um, uh, it's just, there are, there are wines which you appreciate and wines you fall in love with, and his style of winemaking is something I've fallen in love with, so voila. And how long would this kind of wine age? I'm guessing a long time. Yes, I've, I've finished everything I had from the 90s, but I've got stuff from the early uh, 2000s, 2003, um, which with the extra time is sort of forgetting <laughs> what the vintage was. Um, so there's no problem in keeping this 20 years, but there, nor is there a need to um, at all. Uh, I think it's, it's got plenty of layers that you can see, and even though that they will probably express themselves in more detail later on. Um, it's interesting, I haven't had a really young one for a while, so. I need to go back and see him because I owe him. He sent me a few cases of wine to keep me happy, and I promised I'd send him some red burgundy back, and I haven't done it yet. <laughs> That's a nice, a nice swap. <laughs> um, yes, list of wine in chat, Richard. If you just go back up to the top of the chat, you'll see the line. The wines are all listed. Okay, are we handing over right the wine too? The hard thing with these wines is we, we, we both love our choices so much. Well, we could easily talk for more than an hour about them, but we will continue on. So I have chosen, I've gone to Spain. So from Bordeaux to get down to, to Rio, Rioja, or Rioja, as they would say here, is about a three hour drive. So I go not as often as I would like to, but I certainly go um, usually um, two or three times a year. And Remilori is somewhere which I've probably had some of my happiest kind of wine memories have been based around visiting Remilori. It's a very, very beautiful estate and quite a kind of remote part of, of Rioja and the foothills of the Sierra de Tolono mountains. And it is right above it, there are kind of ruins of an old monastery. It used to be part of the, the farm of a monastery. It's just really impossibly picturesque. And um, so some of my memories are being a, around a very, very long table. They kind of set up loads of trestle tables in the vineyard. You had about a hundred people around it and it was a gorgeous setting sun. And we'd been at a taste at a kind of symposium about, symposium about terroir. And afterwards we had this wonderful meal in the vineyard. And then other times where I've been on my own, kind of climbing up into the mountains behind the estate or sitting on the wonderful stone bench with a glass of the red and homegrown olives. You know, it's just everything about it is so beautiful. That this particular wine, I wish I could drink it every day, but it's a very, very um, small production. They, they don't make many um, bottles per year and it's pretty much on allocation. So whenever I go there, I bring back cases and I promise myself I'll keep them because it could very easily age, I would say for a good 10, 15 years, but I pretty much invariably finish it within a couple of months because it's impossible to, to keep hold of. And what's interesting about this wine is it's very much single vineyard. So it's owned by Telmo Rodriguez. That's his home estate where he works with his wonderful sister. And the pair of them have taken over from their father's property. And when their father ran it, Telmo actually left Remilori and went out and kind of made his own name elsewhere. 
and at the time they bought in grapes and they made a much more kind of uh, still very very good but more of a traditional Rioja style where you would bring in grapes as well as have your own and when Telmo came back he and then took over completely he chose to only use his own grapes that they had estate grown and before he did that with the red he was allowed to kind of practice his dad said right you go for it with the white and so he created this which is a field blend and it's and he's not even sure of exactly what the blend is but you have here a mix of Viognier, Chardonnay, Roussan Marsan, Sauvignon Blanc, Ganache Blanc and Muscatel de Pais so you've got this really interesting mix of different grapes and the reason that he does that, I mean, A, it's a natural mix in the field, but the way that he likes to describe this is he wants to obliterate the idea of grape varieties so that it speaks of a sense of place. And if you can just close your eyes and imagine this very beautiful place and in the hills behind, you have wild anise, wild thyme, wild rosemary, wild sage. I mean, really, as you're climbing up behind those hills, you, you kind of smell, it's like an assault on the senses. And it's one of the things that I just love about this wine. And you really do get that as you're, again, this beautifully aromatic, but you can't quite pin down exactly what it is that Jasper, you may be able to pin down, but there's so many different yeah. things happening here. I'm not a, a great pinner downer of such things because I want to, you know, it's the whole experience, which is what, matters rather than providing a litany of tiny little different things. But you're right, it's got some, um, you know, the herbs from the mountainside are coming through on that in, and sunshine herbs rather than the greener ones in your um, English garden. Um, it's comforting for me as well, because this is 14 and a half, I think, in alcohol. And I've been trying to get my head round um, my report upcoming on white burgundy in uh, 2019, when a lot of those are 14 or even 14 and a half. And to be truly comfortable in my own mind that white wine can work without a feeling of alcohol. And this doesn't have a feeling of alcohol. Um, no, I agree. And, and, and that is something that um, you could be concerned about. And some Rioja whites can feel a little bit too high in alcohol and don't quite have that balance. But this is so effortless. You just, you really can't tell. You get some ripeness and stone fruit flavor, but you're not getting any kind of sense of heaviness. I really, really love this wine. If I, you know, if I could have it every week, I definitely would. But it's more a wine which I gorge on when I get hold of it, and then sadly have to wait for another year until they can release their next, their next vintage. Um, and in terms of winemaking for this, there's a lot of um, bush training in, in the Remlory vineyard generally. That again, Telmo has brought back. They're making it in large size oak casks. So although there is some barrel aging, but it's very, very much intended to be subtle it's not about as we say it's not about any one thing it's about a, a a host of tiny details that make this such a special wine it certainly tasted to me like a, a barrel aged wine even though i couldn't pick up you know, actual oak flavors but you just yeah. got the overall feel of that yeah definitely and a wine mm. which will age without any any difficulty at all beautiful Okay. Well, how sad that we were only allowed one white, white to eat. No, I know. Oh. But I, you, I think you had so what, some Gruner Valdina in your, uh, in your. Yes, I do. I do. That was my other. Yes. I narrowed it down to to almost having a Gruner from Austria. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, the truth be told, um, you came in very quickly with your Cotroti bid, so I thought, well, I'll do one of those, which I otherwise probably would have done. So I may, I thought, well, I'm going to get Riesling down on paper rapidly. I'm very glad you did because. Yes. Riesling, know, unthinkable not to. Exactly. We should all be drinking more Riesling, and I'm very, very happy that, that you picked that one. 
So yeah. we're going to stay with my choice next. And we are leaving Spain, not going too far away. We're just heading to the eastern side. Before we go, though, can I just, I have two white grapes that uh, I also love and adore. Uh, one of which is the Sauvignon from the Jura, but last week uh, in my, in my actually slides last week. And the other is not Jura, but Jurançon, and the Petit, uh, well, especially the Petit on the Gros Manson. I do love those tangy mountain wines from uh, Jurançon as well. So they would be my, my sort of ex-Burgundy or Bordeaux whites. I think both of us would agree that if you want, if for a good white wine, we want mountain or you want just really, you want really that sense of slate and minerality and on all of yes. those delicious mouth-watering feel. So you either have to go cool climate or you've got to go high or you've got to have grapes which have it naturally. But I also actually, that was one of my other, I just love white wine. Frankly, I really love it. And I wish in Bordeaux we had more great white wines. But so I, I just, I, I probably, if I spend on my own money, when I'm going outside of Bordeaux, it's whites that I spend the most on. Because oh, I'm okay. just, when I, find, I mean, I love white wine, but I yeah. drink much more red wine. I probably drink more red, but I mean, when I'm spending money on it, it often yeah. tends to be white. So oh, another, really? another, um, White that I would have picked was also um, Ganavat Les Chalassa in. Oh yes, yeah, which yes. is an awesome wine. <laughs> yes. Okay. So yes. On we go. Reds, um, your turn. We will le leave um, Spain and we're heading over to Italy, and in fact, I think that you will see with both of my red choices, I have a similar feel as well that I like in in whites. Is I like to look for sculpting kind of graceful reds, where there's a lot more in common in many ways with Pinot, but certainly an older Cabernet, which has started to have that much more graceful feel. But I, I love them. So the two that I've chosen are Cote Roti, so a Syrah from Northern Rhone, and a Nebbiolo from Piedmont, as we have here. And both of those have that kind of grace and delicacy and subtle spice that I really, really love in a, in a red wine. And it's definitely why partly I love Cabernet as it ages, because it gets that kind of sculpting grace. So this wine, Barolo is you know, obviously an incredible, one of the great appellations of or DOCs, G's of Italy. I could have picked any from this estate and very much as with your first wine, I, the, the, the less expensive wines in their range are just brilliant as well. This is a lovely family, the, the Vajra, Vajra family, and they um, make brilliant wines. So I almost chose a Dolcetta Dalba. They have a very, very simple, inexpensive Dolcetto, which is gorgeous, very rarely go wrong with it. Um, they have a number of kind of old, rare grape varieties that they are bringing back to, to, to life that have kind of died out in Piedmont and they're doing a lot of work with that. There's one called Fraser, which I really enjoy. So, so you know, there are a number I really would recommend to people to get to really dig deep into all of their range because they're great. But I was aware tonight of trying to make sure that I picked a, a classic. So this one, um, is so Brico delle Viole is one of their original vineyards. It's in there are like four vineyards on the western side of Barolo, which are very high up. This is one of the highest vineyards in Barolo as you're heading up towards the Alps, and we're somewhere between 480, like approximately 480 meters above sea level, and you're at a point where it's quite um, you're almost above the fog line. So this particular vineyard will get some of the very earliest sun of the day and it will continue right through to some of the latest um, sunsets. So you're really getting full, full sun. So even though you have the height, you get ripeness because it is a south, southeast facing vineyard. Um, I also actually would just give a shout out to a particular book, which 
you may well know, I love this book. It's um, Barolo MGA, and it goes through in a very similar way to Jasper did so brilliantly with Inside Burgundy. It goes through all of the different vineyards and talks about the, all the different families who farm them and stuff. It's really an enjoyable book. So, so yes, yeah, so that was helpful for me today as well, just to remember, because again, this is an estate that I love to visit so much. The family is brilliant. And I've also seen the family in various tastings in New York and Shanghai, you know, around the world, because they're really in that lovely Italian way, very, very open, welcoming, fantastic. And um, so I, I'm missing visiting Piedmont and visiting Barolo, so I'm happy to be here. 100% Nebbiolo, of course. Now this is 2015. It's still young, of course it's still young, but 15 was a slightly earlier um, in terms of earlier ripening and being earlier to, to drink than the 2016. So I picked this one. I think the 16, I, I love them both, but I picked this one because I hoped for tonight for us tasting them, that it would be a little bit more open, a little bit more ready for you guys to see a bit what I, why I love this wine so much. So it's called, um, the, the Brico dello Violo means hill of violets. And it's because they originally had a lot of, um, of violets that, that bloomed at this particular spot. So how's it? I have I've been talking so much I haven't seen. How's it? Is it opening well? How's it doing? Mm, yeah. So are you you're, you're using a burgundy glass uh, for it? <laughs> I, I, I'm yeah, using snap. a burgundy glass. Yes. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah. Snap on that. Um, mm, no, the bouquet is really beginning to open out. I actually left mine in samples. I always put my samples in the fridge when they arrive, hangover perhaps perhaps in the summer, but the perfect protection. Uh, and I left them in a little bit too late today. Um, so a tiny bit cool. Yeah, it has it has that kind of sour cherry feel that you that's yes. lovely in a in a Barolo. I always feel that acidity is so different in Italian wines compared to French wines. I find that I can move my palate from France into Spain or Portugal or pretty much anywhere in the world without much adjustment. And Italy requires a whole separate head. Um, oh. Because the because it's more front of mouth, do you think? No, I I don't know why. Um, I mean, they are much more based around uh, fruit and acid rather than tannins. Yeah, rather than tannins. And you which is, which is something that happens in Burgundy. But also this type of acidity is more volatile, I think, uh, particularly in Piedmont. Uh, Piedmont Day. Yeah, so I, I think that they're so good. You have sour cherry starting and you have no question of a fresh acidity as you would from the fact that this is such a high vineyard. But then the I think this is really classy wine. It's really good. Isn't it gorgeous? I mean, this is a very classic Barolo. You're really getting a lot of those flavours that, that you look for, a wine that you know is going to age without question. Yes, when should I be drinking this? So I would say we're drinking it now, but probably another five years would be about when we're starting, maybe three years, when it's really starting to soften. But oh, I was expecting you to say 15 or 20 or well, something. you can That's keep right. no My old style. Exactly, okay. Jasper, and loosen up, we're having them young. But no, but obviously this would last. 25, 30 years, yeah. no question. I mean, that, that's what Barolo is so beautiful about. And it's interesting you should say that because I think because of the amount of bigger young wines that I taste in Bordeaux, then when I am kind of presented with this style, which has got this kind of very delicate spice and delicate fruits and acidities, then for me, I can see quite easily beginning to enjoy this maybe younger than you might do. Yes, I, I mean, I must say, from the tasting point of view, uh, I'm really happy to be tasting that now. I think if I was sitting um, drinking a bottle over a meal, then I would think that I had opened it clearly too early. Yeah. Mm. 
Good. And I agree, Mark. It is really a rock-solid producer across the whole range. And I, I agree, I love their reasoning. I think they just are, they're clever winemakers and they care so much about their region. They're really implanted in the region. You know, it's not just, that the whole family, they're just brothers and sisters. They're, they're, it's, a, it's really a, a, the kind of place that, as a lot of Piedmont is, that reminds you of what wine is about. It's about families, it's about, you know, caring about what you're producing. And um, the, the main, um, one of the brothers is called Giuseppe. He says that all they ask for out of a wine is that you get ease, you get simplicity, and it goes with food. And you think, how, what, how lovely. And these kind of higher acidities that you get in Barolo make them perfect food wines. There's just such, such good wines to sit around a table with and enjoy. So beautiful, and the alcohol here, 14.5, which again, because you've got these high acidities, you're not really getting any, even a trace of heat. You're not really getting that that's a high alcohol wine. Gosh, I'm just thinking, uh, <laughs> as it happens, your two are both at 14 and a half and my first two are both at 12 and a half, but I, I, I didn't read anything into that. Well, my OGA is at 13, so I come right back down. You come back, and, and I'm going to finish off with the 14. <laughs> I, I obviously knew the Vegas Sicilia was going to be a, <laughs> yes, a little warmer than the, uh, than the others. Yeah, so yes, I would say classic, classic Barolo. And so, I, I, would, I would drink, there's a lot of Barolo in my cellar. It's probably, probably the region outside of Bordeaux that I have the most wines from. And Barolo, but not Barbaresco? Yeah, no, Barbaresco, yeah, Piedmont. And in fact, I okay. drink a lot of Lange Nebbiolo. I, I really yes. like Lange Nebbiolo because you don't have to wait so long. It's, it has all of the, the supple subtlety, but, but it's much, much easier to approach at this time, like five years on. So Nebbiolo is your go-to uh, grape outside Bordeaux? Yeah, I think it, I think it is. Hmm. Well, I have a go-to grape when I'm... Uh, now, our big treat, instead of having yet another Premier Cru or Grand Cru Burgundy... <laughs> Boo-hoo! Uh, is when we have uh, a Red Loire, and it can be a very simple one, inexpensive, but there is something about the great Cabernet Franc. And uh, okay, it's changed a lot, and now many more people will like it because now it's riper and uh, they've actually been taking a few lessons in uh, uh, vinification practices and so on and so forth uh, in the Loire, but I still also hanker over those green, rustic, difficult wines of, of my youth. There's a moment when you want one of those, uh, I, I must admit. But nowadays they are a lot more suave. Um, and uh, the ones we drink are sometimes Chinois, sometimes Bourgogne, less often uh, from the Saint-Mior area, occasionally uh, Saint-Nicolas de Bourgogne. Um, the, the first person who I really got uh, interested in um, way back when in the mid 80s was Charles Joguet, when he was still the man there. And uh, something you always had to remember when you visited him is you weren't allowed to say thank you when he poured you wine, because he, for him, it was the most normal, natural human thing to do in the world is pour somebody a glass of wine and to say thank you was suggesting that he'd done something out of the ordinary. So, uh, so he used to get uh, ticked off if you, if you did the merci thing. <laughs> Bernard Baudry, uh, now retired for a while, was another favorite. Um, Lemme de Lille Bucard, if you want inexpensive stuff. And they've still got some magnums of 2005 for not very much money at all uh, on sale, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, but there's one that's transcended, and I'm actually rather less familiar with, so we're using this evening as the opportunity for me to try it. Um, but uh, suddenly, and 
it's bringing me one of the reasons for um, putting this wine on is uh, the idea that the wine world has changed in one way which i don't find comfortable it's to do with the secondary market and transparency of prices and certain sorts of wine lovers only ever wanting to have the best not wanting even to taste something that might be just second best and i get happiness from any wine that's well made but sadly, and you mentioned Geneva is doing it uh, happening a little bit uh, in the Jura, though less so than um, uh, Auvernois. Um, there was uh, Madame Joliette's wines from, um, uh, Claude Joliette, rather, Madame Minier's wines from Jurançon, and there's Claude Rougeard here in the Loire, where suddenly the prices just go totally, totally off the range because they are perhaps the single best. It doesn't mean to say that they are enormously better than um, uh, you know, other people's wines, and, and sometimes they're not. But I occasionally get frustrated when I taste them and I discover that they are better than other people's wines. You know yes, I'm and of course, these guys, as we were saying before, their prices had already started skyrocketing um, a, a, a good decade ago, but now they're yes. also owned by the Buig brothers. So there's a lot of investment going in, and it's that kind of scary moment where you don't want them to change too much, and you know they're going to be getting investment. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you picked, picked this wine yes. and also from a time when it was still resolutely old school, not trying Art. to be anything other than what it, what it is. The brothers are uh, uh, Charlie and the Neddy, which is not their actual names, but that's what they were known as. So Charlie was Jean-Louis and Neddy Bernard, that you can understand more easily. Um, Charlie no longer with us. Anyway, they sold to, to Mr. Buig and his brother, um, who've also purchased uh, half of the half of the domain in, in Burgundy. Burgundy, yeah, and of course Monterey. Mm. And you get a beautiful. You, this give is, a, you give them the thumbs up for what they do in Bordeaux. For Monroe's, I, I do, and in fact, they're very they're pretty hands off and allowing their team here to do to do the work. And and Ooh. you know, Mon Monroe's is producing far better wines today than it was a decade ago. Right. Yes. Good. I mean, I but I, but I'm not sure that that would be the case with Clay Rougeau. We'll see. But I would, I worry more mm. because Clay Rougeau, so much of its spirit is about the fact that it has that slightly. It's about the people. It was yeah. about the people, and that, and that's so important because uh, something I, I, I've said in other circumstances. Certain people have green fingers. It's in their touch. It's in their philosophy. It's their humanity. It's every single mini decision that they're taking as part of their daily lives. Yeah, comes into the wine. We're getting some brilliant uh, descriptors there. On the I know, I'm loving this, and I agree. So I get that leather, slightly earthy, even a bit of yes. friendly Brett. We're not, we're not, we're not straying into Brett, but we have friendly Brett here. Gorgeous! It's absolutely gorgeous. And it's still just green enough to um, to please my my old old. <laughs> but, uh, mm. Yeah, and really Actually, as you're right, Dave, in, in the sense of the leather and the maturity and the rest of it, but with the acidity and the energy behind. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a wine that's um, wearing its sort of DNA on its sleeve. You can, you can feel the season that it would have gone through. And I, I'm speaking of 08 as if it were um, Bordeaux or Burgundy, from what I know of those areas. I'm speaking of it in the Loire. But it wasn't an easy season. Um, it was a late season. Uh, it was cool and uh, a little bit lacking in sun during the summer and then cold winds at the end stopped it turning to rot and enabled people to make some pretty decent wines um uh yes ah okay uh, that's a valid point that is a um, quick ronan 
could we open the comments so that everybody else can see them? That would also explain why you couldn't see the list of the wines in the right order because I put them in as comments. So yeah, if you I have, I've them. put them on to all panelists and attendees. Okay. So yeah, uh, but one or two people, Dave and I think Richard as well, you, you've got your setting um, when you type the message above that, it says to, to all panelists. If you can send it to all panelists and attendees, yeah. roll down menu. Yeah. Good point, Alistair. Thank you for bringing that up. I hope you can, because it is lovely seeing what everybody is saying about these wines. While waiting, Dave has said, really get the lovely leather of Mature Loire. I love this, tertiary, but really fresh. So anyway. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, well, there's no question that we're heading going. over to tertiary flavours yeah. here, but there's so much juice behind it. You can keep going back and smelling it. And I know when I'm in the cellar, just tasting out a barrel, there are moments when I'm smelling and smelling and smelling and two minutes later, I still haven't put it in my mouth. And when you get a wine like that, you know, it's good. Classics are exciting you so much. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that so, so far we have beautiful aromatics on every, every one of these, of these wines. Yeah. Definitely say, particularly with the Barolo, which was only a 2015 quite closed right now. It's, it's worth to keep going back and just seeing how it's deepening and, and you're getting more of the dried roses feel as it's as it's opening. Or it's the only not, candidate for our burgundy glass tonight. So. Yes, exactly. Pour some more in there. Keep Although some, I have to say, these are... In order to keep Mrs. Morris happy, I have to make sure she gets to taste them afterwards. I do exactly the same thing with Francis. But um, I, I'm i using the 67 Palmer glasses, so I actually use my Bordeaux tastings also in these glasses. So they work David, perfectly well for Bordeaux as well. Oh, good. Dave has asked what this would retail at, and um, I have no idea retail. By so I looked today and I saw it being at about 400 euros. Um, so one of the more expensive wines that we're tasting, actually. But again, I could not agree more that you can get brilliance and more Champigny. You, can, you, you don't need to go to the very, very, the, the Clos Rougeard level to get some fantastic wines. The other thing, um, both this week and next, um, at the end of this week, I've chosen some wines which now have very high prices, but they didn't have at the time they were made and sold by the producer. Um, Paul's asked if I prefer Clos to Poyer and Bourg. Actually, I have much more experience with Poyer and Bourg because they tended to be on Burgundy restaurants. There was a period when Rougeau was getting known, um, but wasn't yet truly crazy. Um, it's one of those wines, a little bit like um, a Great Vintage Madeira, Paul, and one of your loves, in which every time I'd look at it and think, oh, it's a fabulous wine, but it's just a bit more than I want to pay. And then I would think, okay, I'm now earning a bit more money, so now I'll buy them, only to discover that the price has gone up again. <laughs> so they always uh, stay. Uh, uh, I would say that we're quite lucky in Bordeaux with this particular one, because it had less of a cult following, and we're on the right side of France for this, and quite a lot of... Bordeaux winemakers may have had experience before working in the Loire or whatever. There, there is an exchange between the two regions. But this was a wine that we would quite often get in restaurants in Bordeaux. Yes, so, well, we um, actually, and in, and in Burgundy too, uh, quite a lot. Uh, I think they, they they probably put it out to uh, to a distributor who, uh, who did a, did a good, uh, good a good job around France. Yeah, in very smart restaurants, yeah. and it tends to be mm. the Bourg rather than this one. Yeah. Yes, and Paul, Paul has, has, has brought into play the, uh, the new eight character of the other two Hugos. Uh, Paul, do, uh, I don't know if we can actually, uh, well, I won't, uh, I won't bully you into joining the discussion, but do uh, add any more detail that you have, because of all the wines where um, 
uh, taste of least all my wines tonight. Uh, this is the one where I have the least uh, background. It's not a domain I've actually ever visited. Whereas um, I, I've, I've known uh, Telmo at uh, Remuri since Adams first brought him in in the mid 80s. Oh, how nice. A young man. Oh, and uh, the, the other two, which I brought, I know well. Um, my daughter first drove any vehicle in the um, Remolori vineyards because his son was driving a vineyard tractor around and she got up and had a, had a go as well when she was about 14. So uh, that's another right. nice memory of the Remolori vineyards. Right, so I think... We Time moves on, so your turn, I think. 22 already, yeah. So I am taking us to the Rhone and, and you're quite right that when we decided we were going to do this evening, I think within about 30 seconds, I had emailed saying Bagsy Stefan Ogier, <laughs> because this is the other truly, truly great winemaker for me that I just love to have at every level of his wines. So probably the wine that I have the most by him is either his, um, his Coat Roti, his, oh, they have like a village Coat Roti, which is fantastic. They have a lamb sir, which I'm sure you know very well. It's from Sessuel, which is just about 20 minutes really south of Lyon. It's quite, it's one of the first vines of the Rhone that you get to, the Northern Rhone. And it's, it's also um, Syrah, is less expensive than the Cote Rotis because it's not, uh, it's not in the Appellation. It's actually an IGP. Yeah, it's called lamb sir. So sister spirit, for those of you who are looking, I'm gonna write that down for you. Because I strongly recommend if you can all get hold of it. It's brilliant, hey, I'm gonna write that down. And it's, um, it's a really great introduction to what he does at a less expensive price, but also his Cote de Rhone is great. Anyway, so Stefan worked in Burgundy. He studied actually in Bone, and he has also worked in South Africa and is a really a very intuitive winemaker. His family have been in Cote Roti for seven generations, but they grew grapes. And it was only his father who actually started bottling them. Because as you know, the history of Cote Roti is it's actually fairly recent that it kind of came back up in the 70s and 80s. So before then they were growing peaches as well as grapes. And right up until the late 70s, possibly even early 80s, you got more money for selling your peaches in the Cote Roti area than the grapes, obviously no longer the case. And when um, he came back and joined his father, the very same year that he came back, they launched their first single vineyard wine from, um, from Cote Roti. And that was called La Belle Hélène. La Belle Hélène was in honor of Stéphane's mother, who was called Hélène. And that was from Cote Brune. And then this one, about five years later, they, um, and that's very sweet of you, Alistair, in one for Jasper, one for Jane, thank you. Um, <laughs> And then this, about five years later, they launched this one, Le Lancement, which is from um, the Cote Blonde. So as you can, as you will know by now from my personal taste, I tend to go for the ones that are slightly more kind of elegant and, and, and mineral is probably not quite the right word, but this is a very slaty as you'll get from, from Great Cote Rotis. And I adore this wine. There, you can't, there aren't many made of either of them, but when you can find them, they really show to me what can be produced in Cote Roti. This is of course 100% Syrah, but it has that incredible kind of soaring freshness and really beautiful floral aromatics. This is one which I- It's of course 100% Syrah. Yeah, well, not of course. Okay, well, they, it, this is, but they do, have, of course, there are other grapes in-, um, in Well, you're allowed Viognier to- uh... But this one isn't. But this one doesn't have it. Uh, it is, you mentioned them uh, growing peaches down there, and I almost wish you had because it has a very peachy bouquet to me, as well as the. All wow. the <laughs> but I'm definitely picking. Uh, also, suggestion 
unless uh, no, I haven't. Have I had anything else? I haven't had. Well, there could be some white peaches. I think you could get. You can see yeah. that in here. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly has rose. It has the floral side, and it oh god, it's so it's lovely, and it almost has a saline salty finish as well. And I like I yeah. love what you said, Alistair. Taut, highly strung thoroughbred, beautiful. Okay, so um, you love um, Ogier's wines, yeah. Uh, particularly an Ogier thing, or is it Cotretti in general that uh, really? Well, I I I like Cotretti in general. I like Cornas. I, I really I'm a Northern Rhone fan. I, I like both yeah. of the Rhones, and of course I have, I drink a lot of just straight Cote de Rhones, which tend to be from the mm. southern part. But when I'm buying for me or when I'm drinking for me, I would go Hermitage, Saint Joseph, one of the best values in the whole of France, I think. Um, and then Cote Roti if I'm spending a little bit more. But I, I'm, I'm definitely Cote Roti is my number one. I mean, I'm Northern Rhone, I adore, but Cote Roti number one. But I, however, would you go? Would you go? Cote very Roti wide range of different producers that I enjoy, of of of, of different sorts. Um, some uh, Auger strikes me as being a little bit more in the modern style. Mm. Um, as I love Gangloff, who you could maybe put in that style. And then I love the people, more old-fashioned people, um, uh, with whole bunches like Jamais and, uh, and so on. Um, and Shave, you can't, obviously we need to give a nod to Shave, but... Um, <laughs> so uh, this, Well, not in Coat Row Tea we don't. But, no, uh, Northern Rome we do, yeah. <laughs> um, This is Stefan, in answer to your question, Alistair. This is a, a Stefan Ogier, but um, this is the son of... So his father Michel was the first guy yes. to start bottling the wines and then Stefan took over and today it's mm. Stefan that runs the estate. And there is, it's, you said here Mark that it is well worth a visit and in fact I think this is one of the estates that you don't fully understand until you visited and much the same as the very first picture that Jasper showed us of the um, slopes when we were in Germany you have that same thing here, of, of, you know, again, of course, that is one of the things that Cote Roti is known for are the slopes. And what's interesting about this particular estate is a lot of the slopes, Stefan himself by hand kind of reclaimed from scrubland and then worked with a local stonemason to rebuild the stone walls. Again, something which Jasper, you know a lot about and do a lot yourself. So I'm sure if you have visited this property, which I'm sure you have, um, then that's so it's, it's, I, ne I nearly got thrown out of tasting at uh, Romani Conti uh, last month because I complained he's just rebuilding the walls around uh, the bit of Richbourg they're uh, replanting and I said why haven't you done it in dry stone and he said but we have and well I don't think they have you pointed out he hadn't they've used a thing in French it's called show which is is, is is a dry it's not a cement as such but it's a grouting of some sort and uh, as a as a purist and dry stone water. I don't think you should use that at all. Anyway, there you go. But they didn't throw you out. Oh, yes. Well, oh, these, are, these, wall, these walls, I think, are dry stone. If um, Stefan is listening, he can correct me, but I'm pretty yes. sure they are fully dry stone walls. Yes. And yes, so, the, so just five years ago, they built a very modern um, winery down in, in Ompuy. So they have the, the, the vineyard, the vines up, and then a much more kind of modern, sleek, quite un- uncoroti because so many of them have brilliantly old school wineries whereas this one now has become quite sleek but when you go in it and you speak to Stefan you just see the, the passion that he has for isolating these different terroirs and he, he also blends as I say you really should look out for the coroti village that he does which is called my village mon village and there it is a blend but he just even when he's blending the amount of work behind the blend that is done to isolate and to vinify to 
exactly get the right nuances that he's looking for. He really, he's a very, very talented winemaker. Mm. Yeah, this is a great, very good persistence of, of, of flavor. I agree. And in fact, it starts more. off being quite elegant, but as the, as it builds in the palate, you're actually getting quite a lot of rich, rich flavors. And this is 10 years old now. I've got quite a lot of black cloves, even olives, as it starts to open and deepen in the palate. Mm. Okay, I've also stopped spitting. I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm having all of these wines. They're great. <laughs> okay, well, I think we've only got 10 minutes. I think you might need to bring us home, Jasper. Well, and I've got a bit to say about this, a few stories. So um, this is, Amazingly, an estate that um, we ended up being agents for, even though that we had a, um, it was a fairly small and not particularly um, well-funded financially uh, company. I mean, uh, it, uh, it was doing all right, but uh, we didn't have vast reserves. And after the Berlin Wall came down, uh, we knew that the owners of Vega Sicilia had uh, purchased a business in uh, the Tokai region, Tokai, which they rechristened Oremus, let us pray. And um, I knew that the then agent for Big Sicilia in the UK, uh, was a chap in, in, in Cornwall with whom I used to play cricket, um, uh, was not going to be interested in anything that wasn't Spanish. His company, Le Monte Shaw, was purely Spanish. So I wrote to the people at Vegas Sicilia and said, look, I know you're going to do this Tokai. It sounds absolutely fascinating. We'd be really interested. Is there any chance that maybe we could work with it? So they said, okay, well, we'll send our export director, lovely man called Rafael Alonso, over. So he came over and he brought with him samples of what Aromas were doing. And he also brought samples of the upcoming release from Vegas Sicilia. So we tasted through them and I just talked about them as wines. I mean, I wasn't imagining that, uh, that we, the agency of that might ever be on offer. So I just talked about them as wines rather than sort of you know, trying to promote the idea that we would be the best people to handle them. And he really liked that approach. Uh, and a month later, uh, I got a letter from them saying it would be thrilled for you to represent Aramis and you can have Vegas Sicilia too. Well, wow, Thank you. unbelievable. And the thing that was even more special, this was in 1995 and the releases that year were in bottle of the Unico wine, 1970 and in Magnum, 1968. So it was the first time the 1970 had been put on the market in 1995 and it had spent 15 months, sorry, 15 years in barrel and 10 years in bottle before it was released. Because uh, that you, in those days, they used to do it according to uh, how they felt, what they felt the wine needed. Since then, uh, the, that was the early days of a winemaker, a very gifted winemaker called Mariano Gracia. Um, Garcia, I should say, rather than Garcia. Um, and uh, he left the company a little bit later on. Uh, and now, uh, then they appointed a much younger, um, not equally brilliant winemaker, uh, Javier Alsace. But it's become, they got rid of a lot of the old wood because in fact, sometimes it wasn't perfectly old wood, it must be said. Um, it's still the same general principle, um, but it's now um, a much, much shorter time. Now they always release it after 10 years. So, you know, instead of releasing the vintage they thought was the right one to release in a given year, now it's uh, the one that's 10 years old. It's still a barrel seller, I would say, that serious winemakers go to visit because they're so desperate to learn the secrets of the Vegas Sicilia yes. approach to, to winemaking. And particularly, I know when you, when you visit Rioja, they will talk in revered terms about the, the day they went to look at the Vegas Sicilia barrel room. 
And of course, the origins of this uh, do come from um, Bordeaux because uh, the, the chap who founded it in 1864, uh, Sr. Locanda, he had been on tour in, in Bordeaux. Well, as was, the, there was such an exchange we, at the time. There was such an exchange, we, you know, we got to do this. So he brought back various grapes. Um, there's still a bit of Cabernet in there. Um, I think the Carmen and Albeck and so on have disappeared. Uh, so it's now mostly Tempranillo with a decent leavening of Cabernet and 1% Albio white grape, or up to 1%, maybe only half a percent. These guys think long-term. And uh, in the days when, uh, you know, I, I still, still was involved in it, um, we went there and one year they said, uh, they showed me where they had planted cork groves so that they could make their own uh, corks for their wines. The next year I heard they've actually planted uh, the right form of oak tree so that in 200 or maybe 300 years time they can make their, they already make their all their own barrel they can have their own wood on the property for that wood planning That's what i call long-term thinking <laughs> and, uh, and huge credit also when they started these other um, projects which you'll know about there was allion festival for this is an old style um uh, wine from uh, Robert de Boer, but they wanted to prove they could make a modern style, so they created this Allion label. And then they went to uh, the Toro district further down the river and made a, a, um, a wine called Pintia. And in all cases, and they've also branched into Rioja since, every time they would make the wine for several years before they released it onto the market, because they wanted to make sure they'd understood their new vineyards, they'd understood the climate and where they were, and they had got the winemaking what they wanted to do before they released it. And you have to admire people who, who, who take strengths like that. So this is um, uh, 2004, and I had a crafty Google and saw a few people saying that it reminded them of the 1970, which I uh, suspect that their marketing department has got to work on that because uh, stylistically things have. Um, uh, Pablo got... called this a textbook vintage, didn't he? That was his description. Right. It is still extremely young. I think that is very clear. 16 yes. years old, is that right? Yeah. And it's as, as an undergraduate, I used to drink, um, the, uh, I used to drink, uh, my introduction to it, the first time I had it, and it wouldn't have been for very much money. It was in 1962 at the famous uh, Elizabeth restaurant in, uh, in Oxford, which was run by a Spaniard, marvellous man, Antonio Lopez. And uh, well, raise the glass in memory to him. Yes. Mm. And this word unico, it is a completely, well, sorry, you shouldn't say completely before you use the word unique. Oh, thank you, Jasper. I love definitely. you for saying that. That's one of my pet hates is people who, <laughs> who add a qualification to the me. word unique. <laughs> mm. Thank you. Um, wow. So I suspect that I probably... Um, did more damage to the budget than you did tonight. <laughs> yes, it's possible. Well, you, you, as we were saying before, you may be very lucky to have that in your cellar, but I, I picked wines that I definitely drink oh. myself at home regularly, but I'm so happy. We are all so happy that you picked this wine because it is just gorgeous. It is blowing. I mean, really, it just jumps out of the glass. There it's are times I curse myself for my stupidity and the fact with things like that 1970, I sold it all and I didn't keep cases back for myself. and. Uh, didn't even purchase cases myself. Uh, I should have looked up to see, uh, I've kept some of the old price lists. I should have kept it, uh, had a look to see what price we were selling it at back in the day. Yes, probably painful to see. Yeah. The wines are cleaner and purer nowadays. Um, 
you would get a little bit of volatility and just occasionally some old oak flavors uh, in there. But when they hit it right in 62, 68, 70, could arguably be the three great uh, vintages of the, the, the older time at any rate, simply the most magical wines. And on two occasions, uh, once in my Morris and Vernon days and once at Berry Brothers, uh, I did little wine tasting dinners in which we put together in magnum form. We had a magnum of Latour 70 as head and shoulders, the best Bordeaux 70 in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, you may disagree. <laughs> uh, Vega Cecilia 70 and Ridge Montebello 70, which uh, we know that in the Judgment of Paris second time round, Ridge Montebello 71, which Paul Drake considers to be a weak vintage, won the whole thing. Mm -hmm. He said to me before the event, if only we could have had the 70 because it is arguably one of the really great vintages that he made. And again, it was very early days for him uh, at Ridge. And um, just the chance to taste or drink, because we were probably six people for a magnum each of those wines, maybe eight people at most. Of course, a bit of champagne beforehand and probably some cool. afterwards. Um, it meant that we had the chance over two or three hours to watch them all develop. And clearly this is one of the world's most wonderful wines. And how long ago was that? Well, uh, I think the more recent of the two would have been still um, 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. Okay. Because the, the really interesting thing about this one is that even at 14 years, you are barely um, kind of, the, the, it's barely opening. You get so many layers that are evident and there's this texture that's incredible. It's very succulent. And yet we're just at the very beginning of seeing what this wine is gonna give us. A dishonest person would tell his his or her spouse that um, <laughs> Vegas City was caught. But uh, I'm planning to be honest. And uh, Jane, I know you're honest. That's all right. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. I, I think there wasn't a disappointing wine among these six, actually. They all really, really delivered what you know, their, their own individual beauty. And it's hard to do a tasting where you have six different appellations to look at, six different regions, because obviously mm. there's less of a crescendo towards a certain type of flavor that often is what you're doing with a tasting and yet I think all of these have really really kind of stood up and and I'm so happy that we got to taste them together. Mm, yum yum. Uh, Ronan before we go to it uh, you have set up a, um, a poll for us I think have you set it up for two votes per person? Uh, Ronan may have left us because uh, he's probably... No I don't see him you're right. He's probably introducing uh, uh, someone else on. Is he there? He's there. He said one of us have been made. Okay, but I don't think we can I do the poll, can we, uh, Renan? No, so we're just going to have to say, if you guys would like to put into the chat box. There is a poll. Oh, we can. Yes, we can. We can, we can, we can. I hope it's loud too. I'm going to launch it now. Uh, I'm going to allow panellists to vote, but I'm going to vote for two of yours, Jane. <laughs> okay, excellent. Oh, good. Here we uh, go. Right. On we go. Okay, this is a hard one to pick. No, I don't think I... Not so hard to pick. It's, it's, almost, it's more, almost more interesting to know which one comes in second, because I think, <laughs> I think we know which one comes in first. <laughs> Vote away, please. I don't know how many people have actually got the wines uh, uh, with you. Uh, are you only allowed to pick one? I'm sorry, I didn't set this up. I, I probably don't think I know how to change it. Bummer, you can only vote for one. Um, okay, well. Rats. Uh, but please keep them 
Um, keep them keep them going on the uh, your your thoughts on the on the chat if you have any being able to put one. Any, anybody want to? Um, yeah, I, I think I. Oh, I, I think I, I. I I can't vote, so you so you don't need me to. Me either. So you guys. Um, we can't vote. Okay. Right. Well, uh, I'm going to put it up. Share results. Can you see that? Has it come up? We can. To me. So we that. have Ogier comes second with, oh, look, this is great. In fact, we have also the. Ogier and Hyman Löwenstein come joint second by Hyman. Hyman. Yes. Tell me, okay, and then obviously Vega, but I, I think well, I think that's totally reasonable. I think Vega Cecilia just was incredible. These are If we'd had two votes and I was going to vote for yours, I was going to vote actually for Remiori and uh, the Barolo. We're going okay, to vote perfect. Oh, well, this bunch And if you'd had two, you would have voted for? I would have voted for, if, so if I, I, if I was also, I would have also gone for the Clos Rougeard and for the Unico. Although really, I think the OGA was tasting delicious and brilliant. Yeah. If I'd, if I'd voted for my own, I would have gone for Hyman Nervenstein and Claude Rougeard ahead of Vega Cecilia because he doesn't need any help. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, I think the Belle Hélène often, this is an answer to, to Richard, is you, you get a slightly richer, more powerful expression with the Belle Hélène. It's beautiful. It's got slightly more seductive kind of rich feel to it. It's Cote Brune. And then you'll get this kind of slightly more elegant floral expression with Le Lancement. They are both brilliant. And if you can possibly get your wife the pair, I think she would be very, very happy. <laughs> uh, Richard, who's an old friend of mine, he, uh, uh, he used to come into, uh, uh, we had a shop in Churton Street way back in the eighties. And Richard used to come in there. Uh, in there and uh, he, he's just sent messages to all panelists, but he said, uh, he first went to the uh, uh, Elizabeth in uh, 1963. <laughs> So where is Elizabeth? Since I grew up in it Austin. is it is it was right behind the Catholic chaplaincy. Oh really? Ah okay. Uh, the foot of St Aldate's. Yeah. Sadly, not there anymore. Or can I go to it when I'm alive? No, 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 no. no. There was a legendary yeah. restaurateur called Kenneth Bell, uh, and then after that, he handed it over to Antonio, uh, and who ran it uh, until his death. And uh, it was an extraordinary place. Um, was uh, a very old style cooking in Antonio's days, but a brilliant wine list all over the place. And I, I drank some. My dad still lives in Austin. That often, but I drank beautiful <laughs> wines so. there. Right. Okay. Lovely. Well, that's well look. Um, so fun. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Jasper. So great to taste with you. Right. So we just need to do a plug for, I was going to say next week, but it's not. It's Thursday. No, it's Thursday. Um, and oh, but other people in there also putting in uh, Elizabeth's uh, reminiscence. <laughs> well, we need to start. Um, so on Thursday, we have 12 wines. Um, if you haven't already ordered them up, I hope they're able to do so. I think they're being sent out in smaller sample sizes so the price doesn't get uh, too horrible. I've got two whites and four reds from Burgundy, and Jane has got two whites and four reds from Bordeaux. And we promise, like tonight, to be uh, you know very uh, supportive of each other rather than aggressive. <laughs> yeah. That anyway, uh, and uh, I, I hope it's going. Uh, you'll all be in, in Londoners at any rate. Will be much more of a lockdown then. So. Uh, yeah. So we'll do our best to make it enjoyable please, for you. Please, please um, uh, join us, and uh, thank you for being here with us tonight. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, and see you. I hope on Thursday. Take care. Absolutely. Bye, Jane. Yeah. Bye, bye. bye.